0: Hello, you're listening to No Such Word As Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice as well as sharing stories from others Who have done the same. Today I am joined by someone who has so much experience working with animals both in human care and in the wild as a researcher. Welcome to the podcast Kathleen. Thank you
1: Hazel, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah I'm so excited for you to share everything that you've learned and maybe even some stuff you're currently doing with our listeners. But for anyone who might not be familiar with you or your work, can you give yourself a brief introduction?
1: A brief intro. Well, uh, my name is Kathleen Dudzinski and I have my PhD from Texas A&M University. They do have dolphins along the Gulf Coast of Texas, though, you know, 30 years ago, people didn't believe that. And uh, I have been studying dolphin communication and behavior for nearly 30 years, though, you know, hopefully I don't Look, the 30-year part. I started when I <laughs> was two, right? Uh, and I also, I founded the Dolphin Communication Project in 2000, so that we'd have an umbrella under which to study dolphin behavior and communication in a variety of settings and and try to raise money to do that, which which we've been successful at doing. And when I did my degree and finished in the mid-90s, at that time, it, it wasn't, uh, most Individuals who went on to an academic career were not encouraged to do outreach with the general public or with facilities, with museums or with aquariums or with zoos. And my research has always been funded by ecotourism. People come out and help us do the research, and so we teach them because the general public has a much larger a more voluminous voice than the scientific community. So if we can share with them what we know about these animals, then we have more supporters for what we're learning, what we're understanding and, and where we can go with that information. And so I didn't choose the academic route. I chose the nonprofit route so that I could do more of the research they wanted to do and collaborate with folks at universities so that we can have students work with us, but also to be able to move forward in the research that we're doing.
0: That's fantastic. I'm really interested in the ecotourism stuff. What do you guys offer with that? If anyone who's listening wants to kind of get involved?
1: Well, we have, and and we do have, you know, here's the the promo plug for (laughs) dolphincommunicationproject.org, which is our website. And we have information on our ecotours there. Uh, But we also, people come out, they join the research that we're doing. Uh, We've done lots of research in the Bahamas, in Bimini, and uh, decades ago on the White Sand Ridge. I've also studied dolphins in Japan and studied dolphins in um, South America, though we don't do eco tours there. Uh, there are programs there, but we also offer programs to Roatan, our, the location where we study dolphins and manage care. And so people, if they want to take their vacation and help out science or research or educational programs, they uh, we offer opportunities for people to come and do that work with us. And so they would join us, and their participation helps pay for us to be able to do the research, either the boat time or the space, and we put them to work. They help us collect data. They help us you know, record sightings or behaviors or details. They help take photos for what we're doing. And it's it's been instrumental in a lot of the research that we do moving forward because they're learning what we're doing. They'll share the information, but also it means that we can actually be there to collect the data. We actually, you know, it's costly to collect data, yeah. to get out in the field to do that. And so it's a, it's a win-win in my view, because people learn what we're doing. They don't just read about it or, you know, not everybody reads the scientific papers that we put out there. And so getting the information to the popular press where it's accurate, where they see what's going on, yeah. they can see firsthand and, and be a part of it.
0: I think that's great, you know, and even further than that, for people you know young or even older who are maybe interested in getting into a career of research or a career working with marine mammals, you know it's a great way to kind of well pardon the pun but get your feet wet and kind of decide yeah. is this something I'm really interested in, so yeah, I think that's a great opportunity that you offer that benefits you know multiple different different people. It's great,
1: yeah, well, we've had over the years we've had uh parents bring their kids, uh, you know, anyone under 18 has to be accompanied by an adult. So we've had that where, where I've, I've received letters over the years from these folks who've gone into careers, you know, marine biology or, or, or some form of career related to the oceans or the, or the marine environment. And it's, it's flattering to know that they got that, that start there with what we were doing. Uh, And, and we've had individuals all the way up to. You know, eighty-year-olds who I wish I had their eyesight, especially doing the field <laughs> because they see dorsal fins at a distance that I'm like, wait a minute, I need my binoculars <laughs> or I, you know, I need my my distance glasses, etc. And so it's it's pretty cool. And I can honestly say I've learned from every single person who's been on those trips. Uh, I I'm horrible at, at remembering names, which is why I always gave dolphins numbers to to remember them. And but I remember faces and I remember interactions and and you know i've benefited by interacting with thousands of people through the eco tours over the years and yeah. it, it's just it's really cool to be able to share that information and to see what i do from their eyes it keeps everything really fresh
0: yeah you're clearly inspiring a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life but when did you get inspired in your life to to start working with marine marine life
1: well I am one of those odd people who didn't love dolphins from birth. There are there are numerous people in our field who uh you know started out very young. I know I know that you started out very young mm-hmm. with that. Uh I blame I, my mother.
0: She was dolphin yeah. obsessed, so I also <laughs> became dolphin obsessed by osmosis.
1: <laughs> yes, I I uh I, I was not dolphin obsessed as a child. I probably saw my first dolphins at Mystic Aquarium because I grew up in Connecticut. Yeah them there probably on a school field trip when I was like six or seven years old and I did I grew up in Connecticut in New England for for your listeners who might not be familiar with the US geography. I loved animals from birth. I loved science. I loved I could tell you the name of every one of my science teachers from seventh grade on loved science was was and proudly still am a science geek or nerd however you want to phrase that <laughs> and Love the oceans. We we would go every summer to Cape Cod or to the oceans. Uh, my dad was a scuba diver. You know, he inspired me to to become a scuba diver. So I just didn't know how to put all that together. I was in uh, voag vocational agriculture and, and FFA, which is Future Farmers of America, in high school. Uh, I learned pretty quickly that I really didn't like microscopes. So I knew the science that I was going <laughs> to do wouldn't really include microscopes Uh, but when I went to college I tried all kinds of internships and one of them was with a whale watching company out of Gloucester Massachusetts and we worked 12 hour days uh, from May to September for the summer every day all week and I loved it I thoroughly enjoyed it and so so that was the summer of 1987 to to sort of set the stage and uh, I went back to or 88 one of them I went back to college and we didn't have computers then. We didn't have anything else, but you'd go to the the reference library and photocopy the scientific papers that I wanted to read. And I started looking up things. And that's when I started applying to different folks who were looking at a behavioral ecology or social behavior. I really wanted to look at communication, but there wasn't Mm -hmm. a program that existed then. And so I wrote to different professors and, and, uh, you know, Wound up at Texas A&M University with Berent Fursig as my advisor, and put together a graduate committee to develop a program on looking at dolphin communication because one didn't exist at that time. This was 1990, and so there there are numerous programs now, but at that time it didn't exist. So, with my committee, we put things together and said, "Okay, we're going to look at these different things." And my graduate career started and changed three times. In in the span of like six months, because I was originally going to study dusky dolphins off Argentina, mm. political strife, inflation, all that shifted me. And then I started looking at dolphins at Turneffe Atoll in Belize uh, with Oceanic Society. Great projects still ongoing today. we knew nothing about those dolphins Mm -hmm. and so I I actually at the biennial conference last week was chatting with Eric Ramos and he said we're still seeing dolphins that you saw in 1992 (laughs) I was like that's awesome (laughs) and and then wound up shifting to the Bahamas to study dolphins uh, north of Grand Bahama Island to look at them and and so it was it was a I love the name. I'm sorry, I have a tangent. I love oh, the title of your podcast because <laughs> I have never let anyone else tell me what I can and cannot do. And you know, if you go to graduate school or or if you're following your passion, you should never let someone else tell you what you're capable of or what you can do and you cannot do. And my my early graduate career was a testament to that because you know people kept throwing obstacles and not not my graduate committee, they were supportive, but you know, other factors yeah. in the world. And, and uh I my dad used to say I was um too stubborn to let anything stand in my way.
0: So not necessarily a bad thing. I mean no. there's a lot to be said for, you know, advocating for yourself. You know, like you said, you went in and you're like, I want to study dolphin communication. Okay, no one does that. All right. Well, let's make it a thing. Like, let's let's open this conversation. Like, if no one else is doing it, I'm gonna be the one to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's definitely how I've operated in my life, just kind of gone. There's a gap here that I want to do something, no one else is doing it. All right, here I'm gonna take the reins. Um, and I think it's a great thing to show other women. Like, I know also men, obviously, but for me specifically as women, when we're younger, a lot of the time we're told, you know, to be quieter, to be meek, to be humble, don't be too loud, don't be too bossy. And I just love talking with so many strong, successful women who have carved their own path within their own chosen field. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I just love doing this podcast is, you know, I obviously talk to men as well. But, you know, for me hearing from from women like yourself, and, you know, Olympic athletes and everything like that it's just I think it's brilliant to to hear their stories and feel inspired from them
1: yeah i I agree with you one hundred percent i I feel very fortunate. I had very supportive parents uh they they basically said you know your you know dinner table conversations were debates, and it we were told early on it was okay to disagree with our parents. We couldn't just disagree to disagree. We had to justify
0: I why. love that.
1: Yeah. And we had to, so, so we grew up with that, which I think was daunting in college when my sister and I had the same class and the, after a few sessions, the professor is like, you have to be on the same side because you guys on opposite sides, you monopolize the conversation and the debate. And I was like, well, you know, that's what we were taught, <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, but it's, but they, my dad was, was extremely supportive by both of my parents are extremely supportive, but my dad, was, you know, he even said that he wanted daughters because he figured he'd get his sons through his daughters. And, you know, he did, but he also wanted to make sure that we were very strong Mm -hmm. and capable and independent. And so both of my parents fostered that. And um, thankfully, my sisters and I all have uh, supportive, strong husbands as well, you know, that, that realize that this is what you get
0: yeah it definitely makes a difference having that supportive network around you, but you know you took your ideas, you ran with them, you ended up in the Bahamas. What was that like?
1: It was awesome and and I still remember the first uh time I observed dolphins underwater. I can tell you exactly what that young female looked like, how many spots she had uh it was It was something that sticks with you and I learned a lot about uh, boat handling. I learned a lot about weather. We were out uh, just shy. We were you know, on the edge of the Sargasso Sea. We were 40 miles from land, roughly 60 kilometers, I believe, if I did my conversions correctly. And it was, you know, I, I would go back to grad school. I was out for the, for the my graduate career, the, the early part. I'd spend pretty much May through September in the Bahamas on a boat. For four years, which not, not bad to do, you know there's, there's there were,
0: worse places to be yeah,
1: <laughs> worse places got to meet a lot of different people, but it's pretty much in that area, a watery desert, so mm-hmm. my colleagues uh, fellow graduate students were learning about birds and coastal environments etc, and I learned about you know wave patterns and weather patterns and cloud patterns and such, and watched the dolphins for as much as i could and and What was something that was shocking as well to, um, and we got, I collected a lot of data. I could still, you know, I'm still using those data to analyze, but the amount of effort expended, so, which I I still, you know, I remember numbers. So for for the four years of the data that I used for my PhD, I had 1,980 hours of effort, you know, which is- just sort of the equivalent of a one-year full-time job yeah in in those four years and from those hours spent looking for and observing dolphins we have 40 hours of sightings so 40 hours spent observing dolphins Mm -hmm. and from that we had 20 hours of video so it's a one percent return on effort you know that's a lot
0: that's like it's a lot of effort for not a lot of but the wealth of information yeah. that
1: we got from the video mm-hmm. is is staggering, and you know our other st- our other sites are more more close to shore, so we have sort of a five to fifteen percent return on effort where we know the animals will be coastally. And this was uh, off of Mikura Island in Japan, where I did my postdoc, and also off of Bimini, the Bahamas, where we've done significant amount of research with my colleague Cal Sweeting, and several other students and and um, individuals over the years, and. So you, you go out, you don't live on the boat for a week at a time. You go out and you spend a few hours and then you come back and you can, you can get more trips, you can do more, but you still have to search for the animals and still have to, you know, make sure that they're okay in terms of, is there extreme social activity that you don't want to get in the water for or even weather conditions? You know, sometimes getting off the boat is much easier than getting back on the boat if you have Mm -hmm. a choppy sea. So you know all things that you have to take into consideration. And we yeah. had with the eco tours, we have numerous people over the years come and join us. And I would say ninety-eight percent of them were strong in the water and knew how to swim. But we did have a couple people over the years who uh they chose our trips to learn how to swim, which oh, which is interesting. <sighs> and but but so you keep an eye on those individuals as well as watching the animals and and yeah. you, you learn bite through your interactions that way as well so I'm mm-hmm. proud to say that they were comfortable in the water when they left our trip okay so good <laughs> yeah. very good I, so, I hope they had a life vest <laughs> yes yes good so, good safety first well.
0: yep, safety yep. first. Um, you know I think it's so interesting I think a lot of people think well certainly I did when I was a kid you know marine biologist I don't know why there was like a big push in the 90s the early 90s of like marine biologist was like the dream career like I remember reading books like kids books about marine biologists and I just always thought oh this is like an amazing lovely like euphoric little life of just going out and watching dolphins but the reality obviously you know you're still in the Bahamas but you know there's a lot of odds against you so when you were studying there what were some of the interesting observations that you made and started to understand about that population of dolphins?
1: I think some of the early observations for me as I I got to know well as I got to know the animals but it's it's more as I got to understand the interactions
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, because when you study a group of animals in the wild you don't necessarily see the same individuals every day so you you might see the same individuals over a few days and then not for a few weeks and then the same individuals so it rotates through and so the early work that I did gave me insight into the social group. And when you had a, you know, different ages and sexes of individuals both sexes and the individuals together, and, and when they weren't together to look at, well, how do adult females work with juveniles? And because we saw some babysitting, we saw adult females together with their calves, but then we'd see one female with calves. And then later on in the observation, we'd see the other females come in. And so maybe mm-hmm. they were foraging or taking a break from their kid and coming back. And, or we've seen in the Bahamas, I had seen adult males taking care of calves, which was really cool. And, and seeing uh, social play. So seeing juvenile groups interacting with one another and looking at the different types of, of behaviors that were used. So it's not just vocalizations, but their postures with one another and the, the tactile actions and contact that they use with one another. Uh, pectoral fin to pectoral fin or pectoral fin to body or body to body contact. And and certainly um, after I did my postdoc, we started looking at these behaviors across these two species. So I studied the Atlantic spotted dolphins in the Bahamas for my degree. And then I went to Japan for a few years and studied Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins in Japan. And the spotted dolphins, which is Stenella frontalis is their scientific name. Are are delicate and small and and genetically closely related to common bottlenose dolphins, but but still more uh, more fine boned, if you will, mm-hmm. if you use that term. Mm-hmm. And so then to go and see, Aduncus, Tursiops Aduncus, which are the Indo Pacific bottlenose dolphins, which are uh, about the same length as as common bottlenose dolphins, but a little chunkier, a little a little girthier
0: and darker and, as well, correct?
1: And and darker, yeah. yes, and and also. They get spots when they're adults, but they don't get you know on their bellies, but not through their whole body. So it's not mm-hmm. a an ID; it's just an, sort of an indicator of age. But when the first time I was there in 1995, I saw moms with calves that had fetal folds, and I'm thinking, "There's something wrong here because these these calves are huge." <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my gosh! Because we had seen calves, you know, in the Bahamas, and yeah. these these calves that are supposedly only a few weeks old are giant compared Mm -hmm. to the spotted dolphins. And yet watching them, I saw the same actions, the same behaviors, you know, inter-individual interactions with the exception that around Mikura Island, uh, the maternal strategy seems very different. The the moms don't let their calves hang out in juvenile groups. You don't see males babysitting. Mm -hmm. Moms are more protective. Well, infanticide has been documented at Mikura Island, but not in the Bahamas. So you Mm -hmm. have one maybe sexual strategy that might impact a maternal strategy within the yeah. groups. And so, and and we came upon that by looking at pectoral fin contact and how it was shared between these two wild groups. So that was the only difference we saw there. And then we extended that study when I started studying the dolphins at in Roatan at the Roatan Institute for Marine Sciences and did a full comparison between these three groups of animals and found very little difference. So you have, and, and the data were collected exactly the same way. So I use a, a piece of equipment that I designed and built with help from my advisor and my dad. And and it allows me to record behavior with a video camera underwater with stereo audio. So for about a third of the recordings, I can tell who's making a sound. And so I, we do a focal follow, we follow the individuals till they go out of view. And then they come, you know, when they come back into view, we follow those individuals. And so We have that video, and then we event sample the video to look at whatever we want to look at. And in this case, it was the pectoral fin contact. And so we had a method to collect the data that was the same at all of our sites. Mm -hmm. And then we had a method to analyze the data that was the same at all of our sites, which allows us to compare all the data across all of the, the locations where we've collected data exactly the same way. And it says to us, pectoral fin contact is very conserved it's used the same way, no matter where those dolphins are between individuals, which is really cool because it says that you have these animals in disparate environments you mm-hmm. know, across the globe or in the wild or in managed care with a social grouping. And they're behaving
0: exactly the same with each other, which mm-hmm. was exciting to me. To, to oh yeah, that. definitely. Yeah. It seems like it's much more widespread than you might have you might have noticed you know that group of dolphins doing it in the Bahamas and then it's like oh are they going to do it over Mm -hmm. here as well but what's more interesting than that is that they do it in the same way it's not just they're doing it it's they're doing it in the same way but why is pectoral fin contact important in dolphin society or what is it used for well it's
1: it's as we've looked over the years and and we've looked at the nitty-gritty because we collect our data underwater we can look at the inter-individual interactions. And this is also a behavior that, for example, Richard Connor and his team has looked at in Shark Bay, and it's been looked at in a, f- a few other groups. And what's really cool is this is a behavior that's used a lot by young males, huge amount by young males, and you know, focus on bottlenose dolphins for that, but also in the other dolphins that we've studied, we see it. Young females don't really use it that much. When females are older and they have calves, they use pec fin contact a lot with each other. But what seems to be is that this particular contact using the pec fin either to initiate a contact or to receive a contact is something that um, it is used to establish and then develop and maintain those relationships between males. And that's important because in these groups of dolphins, those males form friendships that they use throughout life and that they have. For a variety of different reasons, one is for coordinating to mate with females or or corral females to mate with them, and what we've also we've taken this a couple steps further, and we see so in in one of our studies um, looking just at the dolphins from Rims, we have more than forty three hundred peck fin contacts documented over like a fourteen year period sixteen year period, and seven hundred of those were between kin, the rest were all between non kin which suggests that non kin so moms and their calves or siblings, don't use that behavior that much. They use a lot of other contact behavior because, as you know, dolphins are very tactile, mm-hmm. but they don't need to use peck fin contact. And so, Interesting.
0: We want,
1: yeah, and, and it's, so we, use, so it's used a lot by young males to establish and then maintain their, their friendships, their relationships. And we started looking specifically at calves, even though we had that small sample size. And when calves are one-year-old, they spend a lot of time with their mom. They share what pec fin contact they share is primarily with mom. But then as the calf gets older, second year, third year, just before weaning, they start sharing a lot more pec fin contact, even though it's a small amount, with other dolphins that are not kin. And so okay. we think that in that developmental period, that's when they have to learn Okay, this is what it means in society and I have to start using this with others to develop my relationships, but mostly with the male calves.
0: Okay, that's so interesting because I remember, I mean it's something trainers talk about a lot as well because you know, we're obviously not part of the pod, but you know, we're an extension of it. Like we're, we the animals know we're not family, but we're we're close to them. We have we have a lot of bonds with them. And it's something that I was taught when I first started at my internship in the Florida Keys, they had a program with the dolphins, which was like, it was called the natural swim. So you could just get in and kind of snorkel with them depending on their behavior. And that was one thing that they were looking at a lot was how often the dolphins initiated peck fin contact with people. And they never really did it with paying guests that came in, but with trainers, they would do it quite often. Mm -hmm. And it was primarily the younger dolphins who would do it. And I remember, honestly, probably one of the best moments I've ever had with a dolphin in the water was I think she was only like a year, a year and a half old at the time, BB, and she swam right over, turned onto her side, and offered me her little peck, and I felt like I was the chosen one. <laughs> yes. Yep.
1: Yep. I had that. Um. The second or i think the third summer i was in the bahamas i had um there were two females that we were swimming with and and i was caught with another human and we had gotten a little far and as we were swimming back against the current to the boat each dolphin sort of came up and sort of one with me and one with with this passenger and um uh number three top notch was next to me and she it swam into me like her whole body pressed into me and mm-hmm. her pec fin rubbing against me and it was like mm. you know try being objective as a scientist at that moment in time when you yeah. have the first individual in the wild coming up and rubbing you it was like oh
0: mm-hmm. okay this is
1: cool like so try,
0: try to be anthropomorphic yeah. <laughs> try, try not to be, be sciency <laughs> yes
1: but I mean you know they stayed with us and once we were back at the boat they moved off but it was really it also guided my insight is because she rubbed me with her pec fin. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, this has got to be something, you know, and, and so it was really neat to, to take that and to look at that in more detail. And, and I've, some of these observations of how pec fin is used, because I do think it can be used to quiet or calm an excited individual. Mm -hmm. And, And I've suggested that to, um, at some of the facilities where I've been, where I've gotten to help with, with a medical treatment or, you know, an interrupt introduction or something. And I've suggested to the trainers or to the staff is like, rub the pecfin. Just, you know, take your hand and just rub them. You can talk to them if you want, but rub and, and the animals noticeably quiet. It's like, okay, someone's there. This is not a bad thing. It's someone's, you know, okay. We're, you know, it just, that's very anthropomorphic and the, and the sample size is just a few observations, but it, it, in watching how the dolphins
0: use their pec fins with one another. And when you it's have- really interesting. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because at Marineland we had a SD, a hand signal, to say to the whales, We want to do a rub down with you, but you choose where. So we would give them this SD and they could present us with their belly, their back, their tail flukes, their pec. Everything was right. It was just wherever you want to be rubbed, we'll rub you. And all of the animals would kind of mix it up, you know, they would change, they would change. I would say the most common one was always Peck. And specifically with Kayo, the youngest, Mm -hmm. Kayo in about 95% of the times we would ask, he would choose Peck. He would out of it it was rare for him to choose anything else so with you saying that you know for me i just thought oh he's been reinforced the most for that you know he's there's something with the training that he's just thinking i need to give my pack but it could be something deeper it could
1: be an an exchange of you know this is an important body part for me mm-hmm. and it means something when i use it and it seems to be the case i mean that you know, there's other body parts that mean other things, but, but where on their body part, they use that seems to be important to the dolphins. And it, it, you know, we've seen that across the board. So to be able to use that to, to help with certain things or to watch that to me is,
0: is cool. So you started off the majority of your experience working in the field. At what point did you say, Hey, I want to start, researching animals and human care as well or did you just fall into it well actually i wanted to do that in my graduate career as well it just Mm. the the
1: opportunity to do those studies uh full time wasn't there though i did i attended the eaa uh, eaam meeting in 1993 european association for aquatic mammals and actually showed the video of the dolphin's you know, in the Bahamas that I'd been studying and, and everyone was thrilled. And it was one of the first times that type of information or that, that kind of view of the dolphins in the wild had been shared with animals or shared with, with scientists or colleagues who were working with animals in, in managed care and started talking to folks about that and, and went to uh, actually went in. So that was, in 93 or 94 but then the following october i spent a month in sweden at combarden jure park with with Sunna and pernilla and and with mats and set up we wanted to ground truth my mobile video acoustic system my array for collecting data and we did that there uh in the main show pool where mats set up a, a hydrophone array with three hydrophones in pvc tubing because the dolphins love to chew on them
0: mm-hmm, always
1: Yes. And so I went and I stood on the deck and ignored the dolphins and was there for a month and got, got it so that the dolphins knew that I was not going to interact with them. I was not going to touch them. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, when I, when I go to facilities now, because I don't reach out to touch, we tell people when we study dolphins in the wild, we're not going to touch, yeah. we're not gonna, you know, so my inclination is not to reach out and touch animals. I actually have to tell folks when I'm visiting a facility Please don't be offended if I don't ask <laughs> to touch your dolphins or to touch the animals because it's just not second nature, yeah, for me. And so I, I stood there for a week, and I was able to observe behaviors that the trainers could not because I was not associated with an interaction. Mm-hmm. So I watched the two young animals practicing behaviors that the trainers didn't think they knew, and I was like, oh no, <laughs> they know those behaviors. Like what kind of behaviors? Well, at that point, they had. Uh, Sisu who i think was 5 and vindi who was 2 and there was there was a, a leap up to a person a trainer who would be on a on a thing over mm-hmm. over like a over ledge the, like the pool, a ledge or, over the pool yeah but but high like yeah. several meters up and they would practice the leap up and do things and i i and they're like no no they don't do that yet i was like oh yes they do oh yes they do and then i watched and and so they had to go hide so the dolphins didn't know they were there to watch some of these behaviors. And Vindy, the, the two-year-old, she would beach herself on the floating dock mm-hmm. and she would roll in on the other dolphins. It was a, game. It was a <laughs> game. And she did it at one point to the adult male, Flip, who was there at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and Flip was not happy. But Flip didn't get upset with Vindy. Flip went to her mother and like ah. told her off. and then the mom went and got Vindy, and so she didn't do it for a while of course she started it again later she's a two-year-old mm-hmm. so. but it was fun to watch all of those things and to see it and so I did that for a week and then sat down with the trainers and said okay this is this is what I see in the dolphins this is what I see for them interacting with one another does that match with you guys and your observations and your interpretation because you know these animals better than I do and I just want to make sure that I'm that we're on the same page in assessing mm-hmm. it. and and uh, they appreciated that and said that didn't happen very often and I said well <laughs> you know them more than I do so you know let's we're on the same page here and did not expect to be the one to get into the cold Swedish water to mm-hmm. collect the data um, but they basically said no no <laughs> you can go in and ground truth your system and because the idea was to have the dolphins free swimming and for me to get in the water with my system record them while the hydrophone mm. array was them so we could pinpoint where the sounds were coming from and check it and and we did and we confirmed it and i did several collections and uh did comparisons which was really cool the water is cold it was very cold it was uh remembering it in the, at the time right now is like 55 fahrenheit which yeah it's cold sounds about right sounds yeah. like killer rail water yeah, I would I would get out of, and this was October in Sweden, so I'd get yeah. out of there and go into the hot showers. And, mm-hmm. and so, <laughs> but and it it was so I was able to do that, and and so that was more for an acoustic ground truthing, but to observe the behavior of the animals, and and I was an anomaly to these guys because I was not interacting with them;
0: mm-hmm.
1: they interacted with me. There was one session, because we would do 15-minute sessions. We did about 10 or 12, 15-minute sessions for data collection. And uh, one of the like fifth or sixth session in, we cut it short. It was five minutes long because uh, Vindy and Sisu decided that I was their toy. <laughs> and one of them put her rostrum on the faceplate of my camera housing. So I was holding it mm-hmm. in front of me. And the other one put her rostrum on my weight belt on my back because mm. I was snorkeling and uh, they spun me, ah. which was, which was great, which was <laughs> great. And uh, when I, and, you know, I was thinking that maybe the trainers might call the dolphins over so that, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't on me. No, no, they were laughing. All, <laughs> every one of them was laughing. So, cause you can't get upset with a dolphin because you're not no. going to win, you know, it's not going to, so I, I waited until they were done. and then I. Got over to the side of the pool, and I was like, "Okay, I'm done for today because they're having too I'm much fun." I'm dizzy now. <laughs> <laughs> they're having way too much fun, and so that was that was when I also learned more about LRSs, and mm-hmm. uh, I I very much value my interaction with trainers because I've learned a lot. I've learned especially that I like to observe behavior and not try to modify or manage behavior mm-hmm. of individuals. I have trained three beagles in my lifetime and oh beagles are stubborn enough. oh yes yes the mm-hmm. trick to, to training a beagle is to be more stubborn and more patient and <laughs> I can be more stubborn but the patience thing is is uh
0: yeah but- you mentioned um LRS there just for anyone listening who doesn't know what an LRS is it stands for least reinforcing scenario and it's a three second neutral response that's given in the period of time when you would usually reinforce your animal so if your animal is ex- eliciting a behavior that you don't want, you're not going to punish them, but when they come over to you, you basically just ignore them for like three seconds and then you can move on. And it's really funny how you, when you were saying you were in the water and the dolphins were kind of playing around you and you were wondering why the trainers weren't calling them over immediately in my head, I was like, well, of course not, because if they call them over, they're going to, that's reinforcing and the yep. dolphins will then likely do it more. Right. Well, I learned that after the fact, but you know, Mm -hmm. when you're in
1: the water and you're, you're a dolphin
0: toy, you don't (laughs) think about that at the
1: time. So, yeah, yeah. but, and I, and so I, I didn't react and that, so that's for, for, which was a good thing. You know, I was told after I was praised, so I was reinforced, but because I try not to interact and, and don't react to behaviors, uh, um, that are shown to me or at me, uh, that allows me to to just sort of be in the water and and in the group and observing them and not really be a participant. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's sometimes it's more difficult. Sometimes uh, you know there are times when you I, I well in collecting the data over the years. I started studying the dolphins in 2002 in Rotan at the Rotan and Supermarine Marine Sciences. So you know in my 20th year there, and occasionally with youngsters or older individuals, <clears throat> I'm told that I laugh through my snorkel. <laughs> which, which I, I now know that I do, and and sometimes I talk through my snorkel, without making eye contact or other things. But but there are times when when yeah, the animals are having fun at potentially my expense, and so I I try not to, you know, I don't join in. I try not to react, and sometimes mm-hmm. eh, sometimes you laugh, sometimes not. You know, when I have uh, some of the well, this this past uh, spring when I was there. We had several dolphins playing with pufferfish. These tiny mm-hmm. little baby pufferfish, and it was a hoot to watch them, you know, mouth in and out and chase them, and everybody was getting into it. And and you know, it's the first time we've seen them doing that that particular behavior. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was great. And also this year, well, actually last spring in Roatan, there there were last, last spring last fall there were a few calves born. And so I've gotten a chance to observe them and see them. And who is not delighted at seeing a tiny little dolphin swim towards you or, or do something for the first time that is just hilarious, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm not supposed to laugh. I'm not supposed to have a reaction, but I'm human. Sometimes you can't
0: help it. Yeah. Yeah. So you have you know, a very good amount of experience, both in the field and in human care. For you, what are the most important parts of doing both?
1: Well, for me as the scientist, it's, mm-hmm. it's trying to be as objective as possible in collecting the data and making the observations, uh, to, to, be, to, to collect, the video data to allow us to, to then have something to examine later on, and and mm-hmm. all of the data we collect gets reviewed, gets uh, logged, and then is used for event sampling for behaviors. But also with that is using our research and the animals as uh, education tools mm-hmm. to share with our participants what we know and more importantly what we don't know about these animals and about their oceans and to encourage stewardship, to encourage people who join us to protect the ocean and Mm -hmm. and our world. And we, you know, the number of people who are going to be able to join us in the field, whether it's on a a boat trip to study the animals in the wild or to come visit uh, Roatan and, and Anthony's Key Resort is not huge, but if the program is impactful and the student or the ecotourist learns something and has fun while they're doing it. You know, we, we try to make our education uh, seamless. We try mm-hmm. to make it so that they don't even realize that they're learning things. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I do ecotours, when I do programs, the people who join us don't have the science background, they don't know mouth is called rostrum. They don't know that the flipper is the pectoral fin. Mm -hmm. So we use the, the, the more lay terms and the scientific terms. And by the end of their week, they're using the scientific terms Mm -hmm. and asking, you know, there there are numerous types of questions. And if we don't know something, I have no problem telling someone, you know what, we don't know that to the students. That's an area for you to study, but it's an area also for us to realize there's a lot more to learn.
0: Definitely. And you know, there's a lot of people out there who say, oh, we're perfectly capable of doing research on these animals in the wild. Why do we need to study them in managed care? What would your response be to that? Well, there's a lot of studies that we could not do
1: with animals in the wild. There's to, to assess a lot of the medical issues, a lot of the, the physiological health issues. We could not learn that information from the wild one because you'd have to collect the animals so the the potential stressors of being collected in the wild could skew your results or if you're working with stranded animals there's a reason an animal has stranded and usually they're not healthy so you have to bring them up to health but if you're looking mm-hmm. at something from a stranded animal it may skew your results there as well most of the cognitive studies ironically most of the the studies that have allowed us to understand the cognitive abilities the cognitive tools these animals have which Said another way is their intelligence. It's a, a different way of looking at that. Mm-hmm. Could only have been done with animals in managed care because you can't pull an animal off to the side and and ask them to participate in something and then move off. You don't you don't have those controls in place. And so there's a lot that we could not learn from animals in the wild. And so I think that the studies and the work that we do with the animals in our care should augment the ones that we study in the wild and vice versa so you can work hand in hand with these with these with both settings and work with the animals to learn the best we can because what we're learning about these animals in the wild will certainly help us better manage and maintain these animals so that they have the best social physical and and environment that we can give them what animals may travel in the wild great distances because they're searching for food they're foraging or they may be migratory and so we have the individuals in our care they don't have to worry about going for food because they're, they're getting their three square meals a day however many meals you want to identify
0: 11 12 to,
1: <laughs> yeah they don't have to worry about predators yeah. so you know they, they're getting I mean animals in zoos and aquariums have free health care yeah where can you say that you have completely free health care you know, it, it, for humans, mm-hmm. certainly not in the U.S., and that's that's where I'm. Definitely you know. not in the U.S. That's for sure. So, <laughs> you know, it's and it's so it's you know it's there's there's arguments any which way you shape it up, but I think that having the animals in our care was a legacy that was handed to us by humans that were born before you and I were born mm-hmm. that had these animals in our care, and we've learned so much from them that it's, it's my view that it's our legacy to make sure that they have the best lives, the best environment, the best social habitat, the best welfare that we can give them. And so that means that we have to work harder to make sure that they're getting that, to make sure that they're cognitively enriched, to make sure that they're getting the best medical care, the best social environment. And in my observations, both from animals in the wild and from those in our care, The size of the habitat they have is not as important as the choice they have in that habitat with whom they want to interact and where they want to be. So you may have a natural lagoon that's wide enough that the animals can get out of each other's view for a while. Great. Mm -hmm. That gives them choice. If you have enough animals in there that they can choose who they want to spend certain parts of their day with, even better. And most of the facilities, in fact, all of the facilities where I've observed animals in, you know, in terrestrial facilities, so animals that are in pools, that uh, man-made pools, most of the folks, I consider them as having a day job. And then, you know, they come and they do their programs and they coordinate. And then at the end of the day, most of the facilities are able to leave gates open. Mm-hmm. So that there's a different configuration of pools that the animals mm-hmm. have access to, which means they have access to where they want to be and with whom they want to be for you know half of every day. So when, I, when I've observed animals in those situations, and that's all of what I've observed, I don't see any difference in how ind- individual dolphins interact with one another, no matter where they are.
0: Yeah, it's something we would do a lot. You know, a huge part of a trainer's job is trying to give the animals what they want so we look at their behavior and we make judgment calls on who we think that they want to be with and i'll use marine land again as an example so you know wiki if she had slept the night with her two sons typically she'd be quite tired come the morning Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they're quite young you know they run circles around her she'd probably been breaking up some spats between them during the night So in the morning, we would usually separate them. So we would have Wiki by herself, and we'd maybe put the two boys with their uncle or whatever. And that would give Wiki the time that she needed to get lots of attention from us to have some time to chill, be by herself. And then we would probably change the configuration again, you know, we were changing it all throughout the day. And yeah, you know, sometimes all four of them are together with all of the gates open, access to every pool, and they can choose where they want to go. And sometimes we're the ones who are like, okay, we're going to sleep two and two or three in one or, you know, the opposite three in one. Well,
1: and also with the different facilities where I've made observations, there are times when the animals don't want to separate. Also, okay, yeah. Well, you know what, if that happens, most of the time what I've seen, it's like, okay, well, now we have to shift up what we're going to do for the day mm-hmm. because they're making a choice. And this is what it's going to be. Cause I don't know of any human being who can force a bottlenose dolphin to do what it doesn't want to do much less a killer whale or a beluga, you know, they're, they're large animals and they are supremely, I mean, they live in the ocean, they live in the water,
0: Mm -hmm. they live
1: in a place that we
0: visit. I have a really funny story, actually. It's kind of the opposite of what you said, you know, animals choosing to be together and they definitely do that, but there's also moments where they choose to be apart and Wiki was really good at getting her point across. So more often, well, not more often than not, but f- several times we've observed her, we've asked her to gate to the back with, say, Moana. She will push Moana through the gate and then she'll back out and let the gate close between them as if to be like, I'm making sure he's doing what you're asking, but I don't <laughs> want to be with him. Yes. And one very memorable day, we were doing some training with the rising floor with her. So we gated her by herself into that pool and she kept refusing to come to control, to do the behavior, which she knows how to do easily. And she was showing no signs of frustration when we did a timeout, when we, we, we did so many breaks, came back, break, came back, break, came back, gave her so many chances. And usually if you do that with an animal, they're showing signs of frustration. Something's not right. You know, she was totally fine. She was, you know, offering her peck. She was asking for rub dance. She was giving little squeaky vocals that we would associate with not to be anthropomorphic, but, you know, being happy or asking for attention. And the only behavioral inference we could get was that she wanted to be by herself Mm -hmm. because and she knew that if she didn't come to control in that pool, we would not open the gate because, she's technically incorrect. And in training, if we open the gate, we'd then be reinforcing her for not doing the behavior. And she knew that, you know, she's able to go, I'm good here. I'm not going to come to control. I just want some time by myself. She stayed in there for the full afternoon and Mm -hmm. was totally fine. So we were just like, okay, we're just going to let you be there. We'll, we're just going to let you chill. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, you know, we, the, the return on effort for our observations of the animals in managed care is about 80%. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to search for them. I know, you know, where they are. And in Roatan, the the main lagoon area has about 8,000 meters square meters in surface area. So, you know, it's a large area. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, if a, if it, a, if a dolphin doesn't want to be seen when I'm underwater, oh, yeah. during vision, I won't see it. And there, mm-hmm. there are times there were um, over the years, there's been a few, uh individuals who are more shy or who are just not you know they have days where it's like no 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 mm-hmm. and so i won't see them we won't have them you know i know who i who i can see or who i recognize and and you can see that there there are times when they want to be together and times when they don't want to be together and this is this is their home and they do they ha- they've done dolphin dives where they take dolphins outside of the enclosure and they go off onto the reef and do dives the animals that are born there need to be taught that it's okay to go outside Mm -hmm. and you know I've I've talked to to Terry and Eldon and when they're doing that training they have to leave the gate open so that the dolphins know they can go back in because it's a big world out there and it's Mm -hmm. a little scary and there are times when you know if they want to move an animal in one place or another if it doesn't want to move it's like nope you know they they move off they go off they do something else you know and and you have we've seen that so you you know one of the things I think that that most trainers have to have is patience and to realize what you have set for the day
0: may not be what your day is going to look like the animals are always in charge yeah always but for you if anyone is listening to this who wants to potentially pursue a career in in research with marine mammals what advice would you give them
1: if a student is starting out or even, you know, older students or younger students, I would say uh, try to volunteer, try to intern or volunteer either at a facility or with a researcher. Uh, if you look at MarMAM, there's a lot of postings there. There's also uh, with AZA and the Alliance and EAAM, I believe that they post uh, information or IMADA, you know, where you can do internships. Not all internships are paid. It's like the, mm-hmm. the, you know, science, we're not a business community. So you, you don't always have that. But if you do an internship, it serves two purposes. One, you learn, is this really something that I want to do? Mm-hmm. You know, is is it, is it what I have in my mind, what I think it's going to be? Because it may not be. I mean, I've had a couple of interns over the years who are like, oh, no, no, no. I, I thank you. I've had a good opportunity, but I'm, I'm going to something else. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Because that's what an internship should do is to tell you if you like what you think it is, or if you don't. And if you do, then the other half of of the goal of an internship is you start making contacts. Because in any profession, it's 50% what you know, and 50% who you know. Absolutely. So if you can start doing those internships and gaining that information, you're building a skill set, you're building that information and mm-hmm. and talking to different folks. And I would say, Feel free to reach out to individuals. I I would make the recommendation that if you're going to write an email to someone, you know, if you're reading a scientific paper and you see the emails and you want to write to the authors and and ask them questions, treat the email as if it's a a professional letter. So have a salutation, dear Dr. So-and-so, or dear So-and-so, write out your information and then sign it. Because over the years, I've talked with my colleagues and we've all received emails that Potentially require deciphering. You know, I'm, I'm not really great <laughs> on all of the uh, social media acronyms and all of that oh, stuff. Oh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Might try to figure it out. But I've had colleagues who are like, oh, if I can't understand it, I delete it. I don't mm-hmm. even pay attention to it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you want to make an impression, be as professional as you can and then move on that way. And and to look at the different websites that are out there, we we are... Uh, through DCP, the Dolphin Communication Project, we're updating our website, and so we'll have new information on our internship opportunities and and field course programs and things like that. So people can certainly check that out. Uh, and insane. if they write, if they send us emails, we reply to all emails. It's just that we may not be able to reply right away. You know, it might take us a few days to. To reply to emails. So.
0: For sure. But you know, everything that you've shared today has been fantastic. And I'm sure that it's going to be super inspiring for a lot of people who maybe want to pursue this as a career. So thank you so much, Kathleen, for coming on the podcast with me today and chatting. Well, thank you. It's been my delight to, to chat with you to share and to learn some of your stories as well. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please do not forget to like, rate, and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus and I will catch you guys next week.